Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast to help you understand better. And if you're a preacher, preach better from the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rosie Candethel, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University. And I'm the Reverend Dr. Rachel Wren, an ordained Lutheran pastor and assistant professor at Trinity Lutheran Seminary. Our preeminent co-host, Tim McNinch, is off this week, sadly. But we've still got preaching tips for you. Hey. The first reading, yeah, for March 13th is Genesis 15, verses 1 through 12, and then chop off the middle and take verses 17 to 18. And it's an account of Abraham's covenant with God. It's Rosie's turn to take us through it. So, Rosie, where do you think we should begin? Yeah, let's start by giving our listeners some context for this rather strange passage. Good um, idea. <laughs> yeah. As you said, it's an account of a solemn covenant ceremony between Abraham and God, and it's known in Hebrew literature by the name Haberit Bein Habetarim, mm. which means the covenant between the pieces, which mm. should be pretty evocative right there. That yeah. name derives from what happens here in this passage. Yeah. Um, on God's command, Abraham takes a cow, a goat, a ram, and two birds, splits those big animals down the middle, and lays them across from each other. <laughs> so what do we got going on here besides a bloody mess? How does any of this like make a covenant? Right. I mean, it's a bloody mess for sure. Uh, but the animals laid out in broken halves this way are actually part of a legal ritual, which is mm. kind of fascinating. Mm. Uh, the idea being that if either party violates the terms of the promise, they will suffer the same fate as these dead split animals. Nice. Um, and this covenant ritual isn't peculiar to the world of the Hebrew Bible. Covenants and treaty making procedures in which two parties step between animal parts are actually attested throughout the ancient Near East and also in Greece. Oh, I so, didn't know that in Greece too, huh? Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. I did a little research for this one. Nice. Um, <laughs> the Hebrew term for covenant making is karat berit, which literally means to cut a covenant. Mm. And it might derive from exactly what we see here in this ritual between uh, Abraham and God, which also carries legal ramifications. Now, this was always my favorite to do with confirmation students because I would make certain confirmations act out the dead animals. Yikes. <laughs> it was fun. So Memorable, too. Memorable. Probably. They never forgot that one. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So if you're talking, you know, you're bringing up covenant, you're bringing up legality, um, two parties stepping between the two animals. So, you know, are these the terms of the covenant or what's actually happening here? Yeah. I mean, it's a good catch, Rachel, because... Uh, uh, I should also remember that I'm talking with another Hebrew Bible scholar, right? Based on the legal rituals that we see in other cultures, which involve the use of cut up animals, we should expect that in this passage, two parties walk between them as part of the covenant. Mm. But that's actually not what happens here. And there's that's really the surprise in the passage. There is only one party that will take on the obligation and the responsibility for this covenant. And that is God. Mm. Uh, but before we get to that moment, we, we need to see Abram as he stands there. And I'm using the word Abram because it's before he receives his new name of Abraham yeah. Yeah. Um, in this passage. So he's standing there waiting with these cut up body parts of animals and waiting until eventually night falls, working to keep away vultures that are attempting to feed on these animal carcasses. So it's just getting dark and <laughs> Bloody, yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. I I mean, I love this passage, to be quite honest. It's one of my favorites in the whole Hebrew Bible. But <laughs> I, I've never really understood the delay. And it really does seem to enhance the like menacing nature of this image. So, so what's going on? Why the delay? Isn't this what God had commanded Abram to do? 
Yeah, it's exactly what God had commanded Abraham to do to get these animals, and Abraham had prepared them as commanded. Mm. But God does, as you say, seem to wait, seems to delay. And this is a theme of Abraham's life with God, right? Um, I want to suggest that this theme of God's delay or by another token waiting on God's rather expansive sense of timing (laughs) uh, starts much earlier uh, in the text and in Abraham's life. Um, This passage in Genesis uh, 15 falls into two major parts. We really started talking about the second scene, which takes place at sundown with the animal parts. But there's a lead up to this covenant ritual, and there's some background that you probably need to hear as well. So the first scene in Genesis 15 starts in verses 1 through 6, and it begins with a vision at night in which God promises to be Abram's shield and to reward him greatly, right? A memorable verse. But Abraham's response to that, and he says really truthfully that this promise of blessing means very little mm-hmm. when he remains childless and is thinking about his own mortality. What is he going to leave behind? So in frustration, Abram says to God, oh, my master, Lord, what can you give me when I'm going to my end childless? Mm-hmm. Abram realizes that when he dies, it won't matter how much God has given him during his life because it will all for him just go to his chief servant, Eliezer. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this text, we join Abram, who's been waiting a long time. He left his homeland in chapter 12. He was promised a blessing there and to become a great nation. Again, in the next chapter, 13, verses 14 through 17, God promises to make Abram's family so large and expansive that it'll be like trying to count the dust of the earth. Hmm. But it's kind of hard to see how that happens year after year in Abram's life, divine promise after divine promise without a child. (sighs) These ancient folks, they're not ignorant. The biological clock was ticking for Sarah and Abraham. Abraham's been waiting faithfully a long time, and the frustration has built up to this moment. Mm -hmm. Is God going to follow through on these promises, and how exactly? Mm. That's so good. I had never thought about that idea of waiting like as a theme of Abraham's life being reflected in that very just real moment of this passage. And you can totally get why he's frustrated. Like, that's very understandable, right? Absolutely. So so how does God respond? Yeah, you, it's not a great response at first. So <laughs> one really interesting thing about this text it, is that the first time, it doesn't look like God responds at all. There's this awkward oh. pause at the end of verse two and no response from wow. God, uh, which is just an interesting thing to note, right? Abraham has to repeat himself almost exactly again in verse three. Wow. And finally, then God responds with that characteristic prophetic formula, The word of the Lord came to him. Mm. And basically the word is, that is not what's going to happen, Abraham. Uh, Eliezer won't be your heir, but you are going to have a kid of your own. Mm. And then the image kind of moves. So God brings him outside, shows Abram the stars, invites him to try and count the many, many stars in the sky, and then says, hey, that is what your family is going to be like. Mm. It's this incredible and intimate close gesture between the divine one and Abram, a moment of reassurance. And amazingly, Abram believes. He puts his faith in that promise from the stars. And Mm. this first scene that starts out with Abram frustrated and depressed about his future ends on a note of steadfast, if somewhat ridiculous, maybe hope. Mm. 
It's this scene that forms the backdrop, though, for the covenant bloody ceremony that we've been talking about in the second half of Genesis 15, which then begins in verse 7. I just see so much fruit in laying out the the text, the pretext, as you did here, because it just it just brings Abram into 3D life, like a real person with real hopes and fears about his future, even though he's been given these incredible divine promises. And I think I can imagine preachers just drawing your people in almost like they're like, so what's going to happen next? Because, you know, this is a great promise, but it doesn't really put the whole kid issue at rest for Abram, right? Right. No, it definitely doesn't, right? The next, very next chapter, Genesis 16, Sarah and Abraham are scheming and they're scheming to take their slave girl, Hagar, and force her to produce this promised child. Perhaps it's an attempt to fulfill what they heard about here in Genesis 15, Mm. but they create a whole new storyline with Hagar's birthing of Ishmael. Mm. Um, And that's also a pretty, a a pretty sad moment for Mm. everyone involved. Now, this first scene that closes with Abram's trusting faith seems to have been, you know, a temporary resolution. Waiting for a child tests every bit of Abram and Sarai's faith in God's Mm. promises. Mm -hmm. So the night vision scene in scene one doesn't exactly settle things for Abram. So how does the covenant ceremony connect with that? Right. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for keeping us on track and putting us back on connecting these, right? So after this beautiful scene one with Abram and God underneath the night sky, a second scene opens up and Mm. probably on another day because we're also now, we've just went from a night scene under the stars now to this moment that's bringing us towards sunset. Mm. Um, In the second scene, God begins by reminding Abram of who he is. So verse seven reads, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, your birthplace, and I'm going to give you this land. So the second scene is about the promise to land. Mm. And incidentally, the sound of this introduction to God, I am the God who brought you out of Ur, is meant to invoke echoes throughout scripture. Yeah. I am the God. Yeah. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. And in Abram's life, this is the God who brought him out of Ur, the God who brought him out to see the night stars two verses earlier, right? So I am the God who brings you out. That's nice. The two parts of Genesis 15 are connected by this God who brings us out, who brings Abram and later the Israelites out of Egypt. That's good. Yeah, right. So I think the editors here put these two scenes in chapter 15 together in uh, just a beautiful way, right? Emphasizing the sojourning aspect of this God, this God who travels with us, who brings us out of whatever situation we might be in, into a new place, right? So that's a theme that's present throughout the Hebrew Bible. And Mm. it's certainly a major theme in the microcosm of the life of Abram. Mm. This is the God who promises uh, Abram this land, but Abram's response in verse 8 is to ask another honest question. Lord, how am I to know that I'll inherit this land? Yeah, I really like this aspect of Abram's story. There's there's aspects of it that are really problematic, but he's never afraid to just have a follow-up question, right? Like he yeah. always asks the follow-up question, which I feel like in the Christian church we're often taught not to. So he does that, and then in response, God orders him to take some animals and to slaughter them. So, so it's just, it's this kind of almost comedic. You know, he's standing there with these mm. carcasses at sundown, shooing off vultures. Yeah, and comedic, there is something there. I mean, you can sort of see this man trying to wave off the vultures, <laughs> waiting for what's going to happen next, right? Yeah. 
And what happens is something really strange, right? The sun sets on Abram waiting and he falls into a deep sleep. And the Hebrew word is the same as when Adam falls into a deep sleep when God forms Eve. So tardama is the word, right? It's weird. So while he's in this deep sleep, he feels what has been translated as a great dark dread, a sense of horror in different places, Mm. that in the midst of which God speaks and Mm. he speaks a prophecy. So our first reading cuts off at verse 12 uh, before bringing us then uh, for the close of the reading at the end of the covenant ritual. But in the omitted verses, basically God informs Abram that his descendants will be enslaved for 400 years in a foreign land. But afterwards, they'll emerge prosperous, you know, after a short 400 years <laughs> and return to this land that God has just promised for their inheritance. And, you know, that's somehow how God will reassure Abram that this is how it's going to happen. I love it. So in response to Abram's being impatient with waiting, God talks about 400 years until the promise of the land is fulfilled. <laughs> so is this, like, is that supposed to be comfort? Right. I know. And then, see, I feel like this gets more and more strange the more you kind of dwell in the details. Because Uh. remember when I said the covenant ritual involves two parties? Yeah. Well, what happens is that after this promise is spoken by God, a thick gloom covers the scene. And this image appears of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that pass between the animal parts. Mm. A floating, smoking fire pot and a torch of fire that disembodied light passing between the scene of death and darkness with Mm. Abram's sense of deep dread. I mean, it's downright creepy and (laughs) it's a picture you can really sort of paint in your head. The narrative really invites you to kind of be there. It's also just amazing and full of mystery and portrait. First, right, so there's a legal statement that's being made. God, by walking alone, that that fire pot and that smoking, uh, whatever that is, moving altar, God is saying, I swear on myself. It's Mm. just me that's here in the middle of these animals. May what has happened to these animals happen to me Mm. alone if I don't fulfill this promise to grant you this land. Mm. God walks between the pieces of the animal to actualize that promise. And it's not Abram. Abram doesn't take a step in there. There's no obligation to him. No curse applies to him. He's simply the grantee. Um, So there, yeah, that's the the kind of legal effect of this. But second, I just want to allow our imagination to dwell on and take in the scene. That floating, smoking fire pot, uh, Mm. the firelight in the gloom reminds me of the pillars of fire and cloud in the Exodus. Mm. And it also reminds me of the Sinai theophany, which mm. includes smoke and fire. So, I mean, these symbols of, of God in the darkness. Mm. Um, and then finally, it also reminds me of incense in a worship service. Mm-hmm. Um, nice association there. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's a great thing to think about for a minute because we're in Lent right now, right? right. Like the season of liturgy, if you're ever going to do liturgy. So So how might we approach that reading with that kind of like liturgical reflection point? Yeah, so right. So this reading falls on the second Sunday of Lent. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think the theme of waiting that we've been talking about, this theme of delay, and also this kind of passionate, painful, Mm. expectant waiting, which is so much a part of Lent, they're here in this passage with Abram in a really kind of personal way that preachers might really spend some time dwelling with mm. uh, the character of Abram. You can you kind of wrap your your mind, your heart, your being around this strange person of Abram, yeah. right? 
So one preaching angle that I've been considering is the painfulness of Abram's longing, which might be someplace that we might connect to. And as you said, too, his unique, I think, in some ways, ability to speak back to God about it, right? Mm. So he's not afraid to ask the question that some of us have suppressed, you know, mm. like, how is this going to happen Um you know, is it okay for me to imagine with you, you know, what the future might look like? And it it's probably not going to look like the picture that I have in mind. Yeah. In both of the scenes here in Genesis 15, we see Abram voicing doubts, fears, asking for confirmation. And many of us during the period of Lent might be looking for ways to enhance our prayer life, mm. to permit us to ask those suppressed questions. And Abram offers us maybe an example of someone who can be very honest with God about his frustration and yet remain in relationship. Mm -hmm. So maybe he teaches us how to pray this season with our doubts and frustrations, um, mm. because despite receiving incredible promises, which we have too, Abram needs reassurances and mm. so do we. Mm. Um, God seems to understand that. The passage does not punish Abram for asking questions. Mm. In both of these scenes, God responds in important ways. In the first, God reminds Abram that God has brought him out. He's brought him out of every situation that he's faced in the past. <laughs> he brings him out again under a night sky to show him something beyond his immediate vision. And in the second scene, God responds by assuring Abram of his promise by swearing upon the divine self in this absolutely mind-blowing way. Yeah. God responds to our doubts and fears, but it's not always in the ways we want or on our schedule, nor does God's answer always solve the underlying problem. Mm. So there's that, right? Abram's childlessness continues to be a painful test of his trust in God. And the story of Abram, though, it nourishes my imagination because it's truthful. Mm -hmm. It's truthful about those hard, uncertain parts of life, of prayer, and of waiting on God. Yeah. And maybe after two years of pandemic stasis, mm. maybe a lot of us feel like Abram, kind of stuck in place and uncertain mm -hmm. about the future. Mm -hmm. That's so good. I've done this text so many times, but I feel like you've made it live today in a way that I hadn't done yet. And I think that theme of waiting and of painful honesty about what the waiting is doing to us in our relationship with God is, is fantastic. Okay, so what like major pitfalls? Anything that, that uh, preachers might want to avoid? Yeah, I think um, I think it's been easy to equate Abram, you know, as the father of faithfulness. Uh, hmm. I mean, the New Testament does that too. His trusting response under the stars, you know, it just it's it's so beautiful. You kind of want to end the passage there or end the <laughs> reading there. Uh, but this narrative is full of doubts, fears, horrors, deep darkness, yeah. and uncertainty. And there's just, there's a lot of mystery here. Um, and I think we do our, our adult congregations a disservice. You know, they, when we talk about Abram's faith without also acknowledging those hard, painful parts of his journey, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Abram continues to express doubt throughout his life. He is fearful after this moment of being shown the stars. Mm. Abram and Sarah are so fearful together that they decide to abuse their maidservant yeah. Hagar in order to get the child they want so desperately. So, you know, this is not a perfect story of faith, but a truthful one about faith that needs reassurance. And it's a faith that wavers and a faith that shakes. I love that. And I feel like the English translation of the Hebrew name for this covenant almost captures that. It, I was so caught by when you said it's a covenant between the pieces. 
You know, it's almost like, yeah, I mean, that's your line. But I feel like you could take that and talk about like faith between the pieces or trust between the pieces. Like it's not a whole thing yet. And maybe this side of the eschaton, it's not going to be, but the covenant still remains, even if it's a covenant between the pieces, you know, and that's like Abram in a nutshell. almost. That's so good. Yeah. I hope people run with that one. Yeah. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. And that was awesome. Thanks, Rosie. That was great. Remember, friends, all of our episodes are at firstreadingpodcast.com, along with other resources. And now your very own First Reading swag on the merchandise page. If you are on the Book of Faces, you can also find us there and give us some feedback in the comments. A special thank you to those who have generously chosen to donate to keep First Reading sustainable. We very much appreciate it. Thanks also to Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University for a grant that helps us out. And thanks to you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Dr. Rachel Wren. And I'm Rosie Canipal. Have a great week.